I want to start by reminding you something that might sound really basic at beginning, but, you know, we forget it. It's that Christianity is Christocentric. That's a big word, but what it means is that Christianity is focused on Christ. That's why it's called that Christianity, right? It's like, it's about Jesus. It's Christ-centered. It's focused on God. And in Christianity, the things that God views as important, Christianity views as important. So it's easy for us to get our own agendas and our own things, but in Christianity, what God values, what God prioritizes, what God views as important is what we see as important. And God has told us what he sees as important. What he values. He sees people as important. It's not a stretch to say that God is a missionary God. When you think of missions, there's like the sender, and then there's the one that's sent, and there's those to whom, you know, the sent one is sent. But right at the heart of the gospel, one of the more famous um, evangelism verses is there in John 3, 16 and 17, where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God is a missionary God. The Father loves people and he wants them to be saved. That's why he sent his son, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The son loves people and he wants them to be saved. That's why he willingly offered his life as a sacrifice. The spirit loves people and he wants them to be saved. And listen, if you love what God loves and you value what God values, you and I, we should love people and we should want them to be saved. We got to share our faith. Now that might be uncomfortable and it might be awkward, especially in a world today where if the world system disagrees with you, they try to disappear you. They just try to get like erase you. And sometimes we think, but I want to stay friends with this person. I want to keep my social group. And let me tell you, like, if you're honestly walking in love towards them, like, what, what a beautiful expression of, you know, friendliness. Wanting, truly wanting to see them saved. There's something we got to realize as we consider this concept of sharing our faith. It's the value of people in the eyes of God. The value of people in the eyes of God. What is a soul worth? Well, every soul is of infinite value to God. That's why eternal consequences are eternal blessing, infinite blessing or infinite eternal separation from God. There's an eternal value that God has placed on people. The Bible tells us that each of us are fearfully and wonderfully made by God, that we've been knit together in our mother's womb. And when you read Psalm 139, it talks about God like beholding your very formation. 
Like God is watching your formation. You know how special that makes you? That he cares about that? I mean, whoa, what an exciting day when, you know, a pregnant mama gets to go and see the ultrasound. And yet the whole time God is watching this little life being knit together from the womb so precious in the eyes of God. So special. And not just that, but you know that you were made in the image of God? You know how precious that makes you? Pretty special. (laughs) To the Lord, you are pretty special. And you know, know, people might say, oh, you're just this. You're just common. You're just average. Or you're just an obstacle. Or you're part of the problem. Or like, you know, like you almost feel like people would just be happier if you weren't around. It doesn't matter what people think. Like to God, you're precious. Don't forget that. You want to know how precious people are in the eyes of God? Like we get to a place where when we start walking with the Lord and we know the Lord and then we start worshiping God and studying his word and all of this like relationship with the Lord And we get to a place where all of the maintaining of this relationship is so that we can just enjoy how special we are and like to the Lord, like the Lord just wants to bless you. You know, like I know we're fallen and we're depraved and all of that. And that's that's one side of it. But the other side is you can't neglect the fact that like he loves you and he has bestowed undeserved love upon you. And like, man, it's overwhelming to be able to just like to experience and walk in and know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. But it almost becomes so like, we become so like self-focused in that. We can't neglect that that very same love, that same love that has set you free, that's the love that God has for this world. People are so special in the eyes of God. How how do you view them? How do you view them? Do you you want them to hear the truth about Jesus? Um, How do you see your coworkers? Do you see them like Jesus does? How do you see the people that you walk by every day? You walk past them. Like if we... If we can start viewing them as valuable and absolutely precious in the eyes of God, if we can start viewing them the way that Jesus saw each one as worth dying for, if you look at them and ask the Lord, Lord, help me to see this person with your eyes. Because some, so often we get stuck in just seeing people with our eyes, right? Like, that person is a nuisance. You know what I mean? Or like, uh-oh, that person, that person is going to like, you know, they're, they're always so antagonistic towards me. I, I'm not, I, I, I want to stay away. You know, and we get this, like, the way that we view them. But if we can begin to, like, ask the Lord, Lord, help me to see these people how you see them. Then there really wouldn't be much that shouldn't be anything that you wouldn't be able to do or you wouldn't want to do or be willing to do help them to come to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Great Commission is to go into all the world. 
And if you look in the Gospel of Mark, it says, and preach the gospel to every creature. If you look in Matthew, it says, make disciples of every nation. Both of those are part of the Great Commission. Preaching the gospel, making disciples. But going into all the world, it doesn't say go into all the world as vacationers and tourists, enjoying other cultures and ethnic foods. That sounds great, you know, like, wow, a vacation. But the commission is go and preach the gospel and make disciples. When you think of that, like, man, if I, I could be going to, you know, somewhere nice and exotic. I could be out watching the killer whales in Alaska on a cruise. And yet the opportunity go, comes up for you to go somewhere, like, obscure. God sees people as precious. And when you see people the way God sees people, you remember a few years back when the guy jumped off the boat, tried to, you know, kayak to the island where no people, nobody has ever been able to share the gospel with that isolated people group. And everybody warned him, hey, like, that's crazy. Don't go there. And, he's, and he just, he wouldn't stop. And he got there to the island, and the people came out on the, on the shore. And as soon as he stepped foot on the island, they killed him. And people were thinking, man, what a waste. What a foolish thing. But that guy saw those people as precious in the eyes of God, people that Jesus Christ willingly shed his own blood for, and he saw them as worth it. And someone had to try, and he tried because he viewed them as worth it, precious in the eyes of God. We've been called to do it, to preach the gospel. And it might seem intimidating to think about going out there and starting a conversation with a stranger, but that's what we're called to do. And that's the example that was set, to, set for us by the very first disciples. Romans 1, verse 16, and, or 16 through 19 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, please, I know the pressures of the world that we're living in today. But do not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. So often we feel the pressures of the world today. We have to make the gospel fit into the culture. We have to make the gospel bow down to the culture. But don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Why should you not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ? For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, last week, we saw Andrew and John. They spent one day with Jesus. And he gave them that gracious and welcoming invitation to their question. Remember, they were following, and the question was, uh, we want to know where you're staying. And he's like, the gracious invitation. Look with me in verse 39. And he said to them, come and see. And they came, and they saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. That was about the 10th hour. That come and see offered to them by Jesus completely changed the course of their life. They spent one day with him. 
And please know that our God is such an inviting God. He is such an, there are so many amazing invitations in the scripture. If, you know, and some, if you looked at the discussion worksheet from last week, you might have seen some of these verses, like Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. This is one of those pigeon verses in the Bible. Oh, everyone who thirsts, you know, like, uh, no. Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money. Wait, wait, wait. Who does he invite to come? Everyone who thirsts. And you who have no money. Man. Come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? I mean, even just that fact that like, how many random things do you have to buy on Amazon before you realize, you know, that you're wasting your wages on what does not satisfy? And there is a longing in your heart. And he says, come, you are thirsting. Come and buy without money. Come. He says, listen carefully to me. And eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear to me and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you. The sure mercies of David. Who's invited to come? Everyone who thirsts. What about John 7, 37 through 39? On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Who's invited? If anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Or in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30, he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. What an invitation. Anyone who thirsts, come. Anyone who is weary and heavy laden, come to me, all you, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. These are invitations from God. God is such an inviting God. He wants you to come to him. He loves you. And, and when you do, when you come that time that you spend with him, it'll change you. It'll change you. Just like it changed Andrew and like it changed John. And let's see what the immediate effect upon their life of them spending that day with Jesus was. What was the immediate effect? We find in verse 40 here of John chapter 1. It says, One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. 
And he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now, when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. So the very first thing after the come and see, and they spent that day with him, the very first thing Andrew does, it tells us there in verse 40, he first found his own brother. And he went to tell his brother what he found. We found the Messiah. The Christ. And then in verse 42, the, the next thing he does is he brings him to Jesus. So what's this very first thing that starts happening in the lives of those who are spending time with Jesus? The very first thing that we see happening in Andrew is he goes and finds his brother, tells him about Jesus, and then brings him to Jesus. Sounds like evangelism to me. Sounds like he's got some good news and he wants to go share it. <laughs> now, little did he know when he's bringing Simon Peter to Christ, little did he know all that Peter would become. But that's not why he brought Peter to Jesus. Listen, we don't bring people to Jesus because we see potential in them. Oh, that guy's such a good salesman. Like, he would be a great evangelist. I'm going to try to get him to know Jesus. Or you know what? That person, they have a lot of money. They would really be able to tithe. We'd get that church built in no time. Let's go tell them about Jesus. That's not why we go and tell people about Jesus. We don't tell people about Jesus because we think or the way they might fit into the kingdom. We tell people about Jesus because God loves them. Because he is, they are precious in his sight. Because he shed his blood for them. Like that Christ, the, those people, each individual, they are the reward of his suffering and he is worthy of them. And for that, that's why we tell them. Because he loves them with that everlasting love. And so, we tell people about Jesus because, because the heart of God Jesus is for them, like he loves them. But it's up to Jesus to change and transform us. It's up to Jesus to see how he sees fit for us to be like useful in the kingdom. So beautiful that like Andrew goes and tells Simon Peter, Simon Peter eventually goes and preaches the gospel and thousands get saved. But it doesn't matter if you're telling the gospel to one and they, their life changes or if you're telling the gospel to thousands and their life changes. Like it's, what's important is we start telling people about Jesus. They had met their Savior, the hope of Israel. How could they not tell others? And so when he brings Simon Peter there to Jesus, Jesus looked at Simon it says there in verse 42, and when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. I just love that fact that Jesus like looked at him. He saw him. And in that even, he's speaking about what is going to happen in his life. 
a transformation, a change. From there, verse 43 through 44. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. And he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So here they are the next day. And our text here says, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee and he found Philip. Now, Andrew and John, they were there that day when John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God. And immediately they left John and they started following Jesus. They followed Jesus. They asked him, where are you staying? He's like, come and see. And they, they got to stay and their lives were changed. Peter came to Jesus because Andrew brought him to Jesus. Later, we're going to see Nathaniel, and Nathaniel, he comes to Jesus because of Philip. But here we see Philip, and he's just a normal guy doing his normal thing. He's not out looking for Jesus. He's not out, like, asking Jesus questions. He's not out, like, responding to an invitation by a friend. He's just being himself. And what do we see? We see that Jesus wanted to go to Galilee and find Philip. <laughs> That's so precious to me right there. Jesus goes to Galilee and finds Philip. Jesus comes to him. Now, what stands out here is like, we all have our own stories of that moment where like, that moment where we meet him. We don't come to Christ through the same circumstances. It's not like there's one way that this is the way you need to respond to the gospel. And if this isn't it, then it's not valid. And unfortunately, I think that we've almost like begun to condition people into thinking an idea that this is how you come to Jesus. And normally like the attitude is like you've got this mega church and the lighting dims and the music gets sad and the preacher gives his sales pitch, some emotional story of a child and the father's watching his child die and he lets the child die. And then he says, and that's how much God loves you. And now you need to, and it's like this emotional, even I can't even make it sound emotional because I'm just, I'm just like, I don't, I'm not like that. But anyway, like it's all this emotional pitch and it come forward and people run down crying and oh, the emotional moment. I'm responding to the emotion of this moment. And it's like, wow, wow, God was moving. And it's like, yeah, you know, like there is definitely a way to sell stuff. You know, you go to a, you go to a car dealership. They're going to tell you, they're going to get you motivated. They're going to tell you, now's the time to spend money you don't have. Like, they're going to tell you, and you're going to feel it. And so there's an art to it. But that's not like, just because there's this like altar call thing that's become so popular. You don't see a whole lot of that as like the, the backdrop of how people respond to the gospel in the Bible. 
I'm not dismissing it. I'm just saying like, that's not like the way to come into a relationship with God. And then from that, we gauge everything about what happens on the altar call and the response, the, the, the emotional response is drummed up. And then we find people that seem to be a little bit better at making that emotional response. And then we almost like leave it all up to them. Where we have, well, you know what? Like, I, I don't, I can't really tell my neighbor about Jesus, but like Greg Laurie can. So let me bring him to the, the Harvest America thing. And then churches are like, I don't really know how to preach the gospel, but Greg Laurie does, so we'll pipe him into our video screen, and that'll be your chance, so you can hear it from the professional. But I'm not seeing professionals here bringing their friends and their family to Jesus. I'm seeing guys that don't even really know a lot about what they're talking about, but they're just saying like, hey, we found him, come see. And it was Jesus that changed their life. It's not some emotional pitch. It's Jesus that changes them. So when we get to a mindset where we think that conversion, the moment of conversion looks the same for everyone and it's brought about the same way, I, I, I think we're kind of setting ourselves up for some error. The Apostle Paul, when he came to Jesus, you know what happened? He was on the road to Damascus getting ready to like put Christians in prison and see if he can maybe execute some of them. It says he was breathing out threatenings of slaughter against the church. And he had a vision that blinded him and like Jesus speaking to him right there, like, why are you persecuting me? And that was when he, his life changed. Anybody get saved that way? <laughs> you know, are we going to say that Paul's conversion was invalid because like that wasn't, like he didn't respond to the emotional music and the sales pitch of a, of a fancy preacher. No, but he, that was his experience. You know, you think of, there's that lady, Lydia. It tells us in Acts 16 there in Philippi, a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which um, worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended to the things which were spoken of, um, spoken of Paul, spoken by Paul. So here's Paul preaching the word. And as he's preaching the word, her heart is open. She responds to the simple teaching of the word. That's, that's, that's like her moment. And that's powerful. And then you got Timothy. Well, Timothy, he was raised in the ways of God from a young age, learning about the Lord. In 2 Timothy 1 verse 5, when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother, uh, Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded, is in you also. So what was Timothy's testimony? That he was raised in a godly family that made sure that he had every opportunity to know the Lord growing up. So he came to the Lord just in like a very natural, within his own home way. You know, Lydia responded to the word as she was just down by a river at a prayer meeting. Paul gets stopped on the way. Here you got, you know, you have um, Andrew and John that they follow Jesus. They go hang out at his house. Here we have Philip and Jesus comes to him. But the beautiful thing about it is in all of those, God is working and God is drawing their attention, not to this or that, not these side issues, but to Jesus. Because Christianity is Christ focused and Jesus is the savior. 
So, among the disciples, Peter became great. So did John. But it wasn't either of those that Jesus wanted to go to Galilee and find Philip. You know what I mean? Jesus wanted to go to Galilee and find Peter. Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. No, it says Jesus wanted to go to Galilee and found Philip. And Jesus says to him, follow me. Another glorious invitation from Jesus. You can follow lies. You can chase wealth. You can pursue pleasure. But following Jesus is the way of life. And whatever it is that you're doing, whatever it is that you've, you know, you've been, you can hear Jesus' invitation and respond, follow me. And immediately after Philip responds, you know, want to know what he's doing? He's out telling his friends. That's the very next thing. He responds to Jesus, and the next thing you know, he's telling his friends. Look at verse 45 and 46. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. The very first thing that stands out to me here, like right after Jesus says, Follow me, immediately he's going to his friend. And what's, what does he say? He tells Nathanael, We have found him. Okay, wait a minute now, Philip. You didn't find anybody. I just read about you. Jesus came to you. Like the other guys, they might have been looking. You know what I mean? The other guys were hanging out. The other guys were following and asking Jesus questions. But you, you were just doing your thing. Jesus came to you, man. Now you're going around telling, I found him. Now, I, I hear this a lot from people. You know, like I, I found Jesus. And I get it. There's no critique here of what Philip is saying. It's not like he's being ripped on. But let me just tell you that often we say things like, I gave my heart to Jesus, or I came to Christ, or I found Jesus. And yeah, okay, that's part of the story. That's part of it. But the reality is that long before you found him, or long before you came to him, God had been working. He'd been working. The Holy Spirit had been stirring you. God had been drawing your heart. God had been working upstream, if you will. He'd been opening your eyes little by little, showing you your need for him. God had been working, just like with each of these disciples. Every single one of them, you know what they all have in common? Is that they all came to Christ during the ministry of John the Baptist. God had sent, remember, we read it in the gospel right there at the beginning of John. There was a man sent by God whose name was John. And what was John doing? He was bearing witness of the light. He was preparing the hearts of the children, restoring the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children. And he was making straight paths, preparing the way for the coming of the Lord. He was calling people out to a seriousness with God. He was calling people out to repentance and people like God was gripping people's hearts. People were in this place where they're like, 
like the religious system is playing games. The politicians are playing games. Everyone's playing these power games. And yet here we are getting dragged into that and we're forgetting about the Lord. It's time to get right with God. Let the world have itself. We're caring about the things of heaven for once. And at that point, it was like a movement that like it was stirring all through the countryside. So every single one of them, even though they came and they're following Jesus and Jesus like, hey, what are you looking for? We want to know where you live. Oh, cool. How do we get in Jesus' house? Remember, we asked him. He let us come. You know, even that was because they were there that day when John the Baptist was like, behold the Lamb of God. Every one of these guys, God had been working upstream, preparing their hearts. And that's beautiful. That he's convicting the world. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit is working in each person's life before they come to know Jesus. It's so beautiful. We can even pray that for people. Lord, whatever it's going to take, whatever the circumstances are, like peel it back so that they can finally see how much you care for them, what you've done to rescue them. Let them see, let them know. We can pray for the lost and God hears us. He's working. The next thing that I want to point out here though is how Philip refers to Jesus here. He tells Nathanael, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. He's speaking of, hey, we found the one who is the fulfillment of prophecy. And the way it's worded in the Greek, it's like this. Um, the, the sentence structure starts out with the one Moses talks about and the prophets. That's the, that's the beginning. The one Moses wrote of and the prophets. We found him. So the conversation seems like here comes Philip and he's like to Nathaniel, you know the one Moses talks about and the prophets? Yeah. He's here. We found him. So the emphasis is on scripture and the scripture being fulfilled in Christ. It's so cool. And then Nathaniel torts back, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And I love that because even that, like that could be a debate. Now, some people say, because, you know, the one is from Bethsaida, They're talking about Jesus from Nazareth. These are both towns in the region of Galilee. And some believe that there were some rivalries between them, like, you know, fishing village, Bethsaida, you know, the the house of fish, the house of hunting. And then, you know, Nazareth, you know, there's some rivalries there. Um, But who knows what's all going on? Just Nathaniel is just like totally dismissing of Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And I love that rather than trying to like argue, well, possibly something good could come out of Nazareth. In fact, let's talk about that for a little while. Here's the reasons why something good might come out of Nazareth. Are you convinced yet? If you're convinced, now come with me. He's just like, you know what? Just come see. And I love that because sometimes you don't have the answers. Sometimes you're going to be sharing with somebody about Jesus and they're going to ask you something and you're going to be like, I don't know. Just come and see. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I mean, that, that's like, look, hey, 
Just give your life to Jesus and just watch and see what happens. You might say, well, that's kind of reckless. But hey, that's, that's what Philip did. He didn't enter into the debate. He just said, come and see. What's beautiful is that's the same invitation that Jesus gave to Andrew and John. Come and see. Come experience him for yourself. And again, the very first thing that Philip does is evangelism. It flows from them who have been changed. Psalm 107, verse 2, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. When you start to share with others the good things that God has done, you're going to start to see some pretty amazing things happen. When you begin to like break your, your silence, when you're going to begin to like, you know, you're, you're there having your conversation with the, the worker at the store, you know, the person that's at the checkout aisle and they're trying to bring up little bits of conversation. And then there's that moment right at the end and you're like, oh, it's going to get awkward. And then you're going to like, uh, do you know about Jesus? Or say something about the gospel. Once you begin to start walking in that, there's some exciting things that are going to start to happen. I remember when I very first gave my life to Jesus, I didn't know anything. I just knew that I was alive on the inside. Like, like there was things happening in me that I was just, I knew God was changing me. And I remember being at home on my bed and just praying like, Lord, I care about my friends. And I really want them to have going on in their life, like what you're doing in my life right now. And I don't know how to tell them, but I just, I want you to change them. And while I was praying, I remember my phone rings and I answer my phone and it's my friend, Michelle, and she's crying because her friend is moving away. And I'm like, man, I'm really sorry that you're sad, but I want to tell you about like this joy that I found in Jesus. And I don't even know what I said to her because I was like brand new. I was so brand new in the Lord, but I basically just challenged her like, look, I want to challenge you to give your life to Jesus. And next thing you know, I'm praying with her on the phone. She's giving her life to Jesus. I'm like, what? I don't know what I'm doing right now. I just know that like you're answering prayer, God, and I want to let you, I want to make you known. I'm telling you, when you have it in your heart, like a determination to let the good news of Jesus Christ be known, and you, you look for opportunities, get ready. Amazing things are going to start happening. So at Philip's invitation, Nathaniel comes to Jesus. And in verse 47 through 49, Jesus said, saw Nathaniel coming toward him. And he said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. And Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. What does Jesus say to him? He says, behold, an Israelite in whom is no deceit. The word deceit or guile in some translations, it's, it came from the idea of like a fishing lure where what you present to the fish is bait. And the bait is what the fish wants. But there's other things involved in that bait that's going to change the whole situation to what it looks like is, it looks like you're giving the fish what it wants, 
But really, you're just giving the fish a little bit of what it wants in order to get out of it what you want. So you're manipulating the circumstance or the situation where it seems like it's for the other one's advantage, but really it's going to be just for your advantage. That's guile. That's deceit. It's like, it's a lie. And so that's where the word comes from. This idea of giving a false impression in order to receive good for yourself. Like if you remember the story of Jacob and Esau. Jacob deceived his dad. His dad was about to give the blessing to Esau. He'd already, you know, swindled the the birthright out of Esau, but now the blessing. His dad asks Esau to go and get some savory meat, like such as his soul loves. And while Esau is gone, Jacob dresses up in his brother's clothes so that he'd smell like his brother. He puts hairy skin on his hands so that he'll feel like his brother. He came with savory meat so that he looks like he's fulfilling, fulfilling the request of his brother. In every way, he's giving this false impression that he is his brother in order to deceive his dad out of a blessing, to get the blessing for himself. Genesis 27, verse 35, but he said, your brother came with deceit and has taken away your blessing. Jacob had deceit. But the same man, Jacob, he was changed by God. He was changed. Jacob, the deceiver, when God changed him, he changed his name. He said that you will be called Israel, which means governed by God. Jacob, the the deceiver, the heel catcher, Jacob, the deceit, becomes Israel. Now, what's so interesting about that is the Gospel of John, when John describes that people group, he always uses the word, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews. This is the only time he uses the term, an Israelite. An Israelite. It's as if he's saying, behold, an Israelite in whom is no Jacob. It's like you are a totally different guy. And that's the testimony of what God can do and he changes a life. What a promise of being made clean on the inside. Like it says there in Romans 2.29, he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not of the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Now, whatever's happening here, Nathaniel, he feels like he's seen. Like, whoa, like, you're not just coming to me and like talking to me. Like, what's up, man? What's your name? How old are you? What do you do for a living? It's not that. The thing that Jesus says to him, it makes it as if Nathaniel's like, whoa, wait, I know I've never met you before. And yet you're talking like to my heart, like you know me. How do you know me? I think it's beautiful. I see this happening in the scripture, like just in the teaching of the word all the time. Where we're having it like, 
I'll be sharing something and people will be like, were you listening to our conversation that we were having right before service? In fact, just after this one service, I had two guys come up to me like, felt like you were talking exactly what we were talking about just the other day. And that happens where like the Lord by his word addresses your heart. It's amazing the way that that happens. I don't understand it. I just know that God is working. Even just with that song that Clinton Starlet sang this morning and the fact that yesterday morning we were singing that song, listening to that song in my kitchen. And it's like, did anybody tell you we were listening to that song? No, like, okay, maybe God was just doing something there. That's really precious really special. So here's Nathaniel, and no matter what is going on, he just feels like he is seen. And honestly, I think we all have a longing to be seen. There's something in us, I think we have this, that we want to be noticed. We want to be like worthwhile, at least in someone's eyes. You know how special it makes you feel like, if somebody remembers an obscure fact about you, like, you know, whether it's like the names of your children or, or something that happened to you, there's something like, wow, oh, thank you for that. Or if you have like a food allergy and you show up at a potluck and somebody took the time to make a special dish that is like okay for you because you don't, you know what I mean? Like on Wednesday nights when we have our prayer meeting and Clinton Starlet bring like a vegetarian option because, you know, like Amanda doesn't eat meat. And she has these different things, like, you feel seen. You feel like, whoa, like, you, you not only, like, know me, but you, like, think about me. Like, you recognize this stuff about me. And it just, it's so, like, it's special. It's flattering. There's something that, like, we long for. And yet how amazing it is to think that you are so precious in God's eyes that he sees you. That he saw Hagar in her desperation. And she called that place the, the place that, that God has seen me. The place where Abraham, in his faithfulness and his pain, and he named that place Jehovah Jireh, the God who sees and provides. He sees us. Psalm 139, 1 through 3, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You've known my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. He notices you. Just like he noticed Nathaniel under the fig tree. And that's all it took. How do you know me? I've never met you before. I don't know you. And yet you're speaking to me. You know me. And Jesus' answer I saw you under the fig tree. Like that, that amazes me. Like there might be a whole lot more like interesting stuff going on right now. But literally all Jesus says is, I saw you under the fig tree. And that was all it took to provoke in Nathaniel. You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. He says in that very first meeting, Things that later on at Caesarea Philippi, when Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, you know, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven, like, good job, Peter, you got it. Day one, Nathaniel's saying that. Then at, the Palm, at Palm Sunday, at the triumphant entry, when people are like, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. 
It takes them all the way till then and the raising of Lazarus to get to that. Nathaniel, Jesus just says, I saw you under a fig tree. He's like, I believe. I just love that. I love it. He sees him. And he proclaimed him as the king right then and there. And finally, in wrapping it up, verse 50 and 51. So Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Interestingly, you know, I meant that made that little connection between an Israelite in whom is no guile and that contrast of Jacob, the deceiver, becoming Israel governed by God. Interestingly, Jesus stays on the Jacob imagery here as he continues to speak to Nathaniel, which shows me that there's something going on about that story in the way that he's addressing Nathaniel's heart. He says, you believe because I saw you under a fig tree? Wait till you see this. Angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That is a direct reference to a vision that Jacob had when he was running away from Esau because he was a deceiver. Running away from Esau. He knew that his life was in danger. And he withdrew himself alone. And it tells us in Genesis 28, verse 11 and 12, so he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head. And he lay down in that place to sleep. And then he dreamed and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Genesis 28, verse 16 and 17. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. A ladder ascending to heaven, a bridge between God and man. Let me tell you, there is only one mediator between God and man. There is only one way to reach heaven. They tried to build a tower to reach heaven at Babel, and they failed. But one way, one bridge, one mediator between God and man, the only way to reach heaven is through the one who came down from heaven. Jesus is Jacob's ladder. And he tells Nathaniel, you will see angels ascending and descending on the son of man. Listen to this. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in light of all that we've been talking about, how people are precious to God, that's why we share the gospel, because people are precious to God. The hardest thing for me to do when, when I want to share the gospel is just to like open my mouth and bring up the subject. And you know, there's some common ways that I'll start the conversation. I'll be like, Hey, have you ever heard the gospel? Or, hey, do you know Jesus? But for these guys, it was their testimony. We found him. But in the world that we live in today, 
Do you know that there are 15 million Jews in the world today? And 50 million Muslims? 175 million Buddhists? 350 million Confucius and Taoists? 255 million Hindus? 90 million Shintoists? And millions of others? For whom Christ died, who are mainly unreached by the gospel, and yet there is still today only one way to the Father. And even here in America, we think, oh, America's kind of Christian. You know, you've got churches on every corner. Even in America, there's approximately 27 million youth under 21 years of old. And they're not being reached. You know who's, you know who's reaching them? Uh, the pop stars are reaching them. Pop stars with all their vulgarity is reaching them. Teaching them that they are not forever, that they will die and they might as well enjoy every ounce of wild pleasure that comes to their mind until they die. But the Bible tells us it's appointed to man once to die and after that the judgment. And God loves people so much that he spilled his own precious blood for them. People aren't hearing the gospel. They're not being discipled. Almost a million people in the world die each week without Christ. I, I looked it up. The statistics of those who die. There's 1,285,697 people on average die every week. That's 1,800, um, 1, sorry, wait, wait. That's 183,671 people per day. 7,653 people die per hour. So 7,653 people die during my message. 128 people per minute. 2.13 people per second. It's appointed to man once to die and after that the judgment. And God loves them. This life is the opportunity. And yet, it tells us in Romans... Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But how will they hear unless someone preaches? And how will one preach unless they sent? As it is written, how beautiful in the mountains are the feet of him who brings the good news, the gospel. The father loves people and he wants them to be saved. The son loves people and wants them to be saved. The spirit loves people and wants them to be saved. And if you and I love what God loves, and if you and I value what God values, that we'll at least be asking God to give us his heart for people. And that we would desire men and women to be saved. So let the love of Christ constrain you, that we would become his ambassadors, that we would tell people, that we would pray for the lost, that we would get involved. You know why? Because every soul is of infinite value to God. 